Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. Caldor, come in here. It's Gregor, Dr. Wolfenstein. I want you to see my latest creation. It's a mechanical novelist. They laughed at me at University Mucor. They said that I was mad. <laughs> yeah, that was an insane asylum, not a university. Huh. Well, that explains the electroshock at all the pep rallies. I hated that. Oh, while we're on the subject, our electric bill for the month of July was $7 million. Of course it was, Condor. I was making a breakthrough. A machine that can contribute to the humanities. An artificial novelist. I call him Dan Brown. Rise, my pretty one! There already is a famous novelist named Dan Brown. There might be legal problems. Well, we could keep him tied up for years. Tied up in the courts, you mean, Dr. Wolfenstein? No, just tied up. Rise, my mechanical Melville, and join the world of letters. (laughs) He's just going to the refrigerator and making a sandwich. That's what real novelists do. Why do you think it took Donna Tartt 17 years to write The Goldfinch? Now he's just sitting at the table, reading the reviews of other writers and looking anxious and depressed. It's uncanny, just like his fleshy counterparts. Now he's making a pointless phone call to his agent. I had no idea my creation would fall so quickly into human ways. There is one final test, Flavor. Use this phone to call his phone. He's been programmed to think your phone is his editor. answering. He's burying his phone in a flower pot and running away, covering his ears. He thinks he's on deadline. He's a real novelist. He's a work-avoiding sack of poop. I've broken through the barrier. Yeah, doesn't he need to write an actual novel? Maybe, eventually, but first he has to hang around the Iowa Writers' Workshop for six years. Let's listen to a radio program about thinking machines and the creation of art. And now he claims The Bridges of Madison County was written by his toaster, but only after it attended Breadloaf, Colin McEnroe. Get it? It's not my toaster to Breadloaf? Uh, and then it wrote the... Oh, never mind. Uh, what I said was my toaster could have written The Bridges of Ma- Madison County. That's a very different claim. All right, so we've been calling this show... It's, it's the wrong name for the show, but we have this kind of in-house term of art, so to speak, for the show. We've been calling it Compumanities. And the notion being, you know, I mean, certainly dating back to the 60s, maybe even the 50s, there have been lots of attempts to sort of fuse whatever intelligence can exist inside a machine with... Artistic creation. Uh, You know, what can a computer create? That at least mirrors what we think of as the fine arts, as novels, as music, um, almost any artistic endeavor uh, at this point, uh, after many decades, every artistic field, every artistic type has now been invaded, at least by somebody uh, programming a machine to do this. 
Uh, and then, of course, are other questions about to what degree can the machines program themselves. Um, and if all of that's possible, and it does seem to be possible, what lies outside the grasp of artificial intelligence, uh, of machines in, at the level of art? Um, you know, we think about things like intuition and inspiration and things like that that go along with the creation uh, of art. So we're going to talk about all of that today. Uh, and we've got a great panel to do it, which is good because it's a very complicated subject. In the studio with us is Brian Francis Slattery. He's the editor uh, for the uh, and editor for the New Haven Review. He's also a musician. This is why we like Brian. He can think across platforms. He's our multi-genre guy. He's uh, also a published author whose new uh, work, uh, The Family Hightower, which is great, by the way, comes out in uh, on September 9th. I have an advanced copy. It's really, it really is a terrific book. Um, it's also, well, I'll, I'll come to that. Uh, Jonathan Keats uh, has been on our show also many times, a conceptual artist and experimental philosopher known for creating large-scale thought experiments from San Francisco, California. He joins us. His latest book, Forged, Why Fakes Are the Great Art of Our Age. It's out now. Simon Colton is a professor of computational creativity at Goldsmiths College at the University of London with a PhD in artificial intelligence. He's Intelligence. He's also the creator of The Painting Fool, a semi-autonomous painting computer. It's really software when you really get down to it, which you can learn more about at thepaintingfool.com, or you can just listen to the show because we're going to be talking a lot about that. Uh, so before I begin uh, bringing Simon Colton and Jonathan Keats into the conversation, Brian Francis Slattery, you know, you're wearing about three hats for us. I mean, you're a novelist, you're a musician. You're also, although the new book, The Family Hightower, doesn't fall into that category, you're also somebody who's written a lot of science fiction. Yeah. So in science fiction, of course, one of the things you have to do is imagine the possibilities, many of which are ca- catching up to us today, as we're, we're going to find out right now. But yeah. th- So this has to be a question you've asked yourself. To what degree will machines be able to do the work of artists, and what will la- lie outside their grasp? Do you have any just sort of, you know, real sort of easy, dichotomous things you can say about that? Um, yeah. I mean, I guess, I guess I'm one of those people who, I mean, it, I, think, I think people sometimes approach these questions with a certain amount of angst, and I'm not really one of them. Um, at the same time, I think that you know it's it's entirely possible that that machines can do what we do um, in creating art. I mean, there's I think there's 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 a way that I think that people assume that there's some sort of like human intention behind art that they respond to. Mm. But I think it's it's entirely possible that people could have this, the same sort of emotional response to something created by a machine. Um, you know, there's. I think that's even true now. I mean, there, there, there's a point when, when uh, you know, as a musician, you, your ears start to hear things, that, you know, hear music in lots of places. And there's, you know, there's ways that you can eventually hear music in like bulldozers and construction equipment and that sort of thing. So the, the question is as much about sort of the, the person's response to whatever it is they're hearing or reading or listening to or uh, than it is about how it was created in the first place. So, you know, one of the the, the things, uh, the terms that gets thrown a lot around is the Turing test, right? At what yeah. point can can something that's not a human being fool a subject? You know, right. I think that's relatively easy. To, uh, no, easy is probably the wrong word, but a relatively possible and, and frequent in the world of the fine arts. Um, going back to 1965 or 64, uh, there was somebody at Bell Labs who basically did something that looked like a Mondrian and you know, subjects right. couldn't tell it from a Mondrian. So, I mean, done deal, you know, 40 years yeah. ago, 50 years ago. Years ago, exactly. that was already happening in the world of music too. Computer generated music, you're going to be able to fool people pretty easily. Yeah, absolutely. You'll even find people who like it. 
right? You know, who who say, boy, that was who, a great piece of music? Pro, that, yeah, but who think that's better Bach than Bach? Sure. Um, so, but we get into the humanities. We get into novels. We get into prose. Um, poetry might be a little different. We'll be talking about poetry. We get into fiction. And then the Turing test becomes a little bit more complicated, right? Because mm-hmm. there's something about the way that we use words to express ourselves uh, that that makes it, that's a, I don't know, I, maybe you can put this into words for me. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I think there's something kind of interesting about the idea that, I mean, and this has come up in a couple of conversations I've had with people over the years, that writing kind of stands alone in that it, you don't get child prodigy writers. You know, you don't, you know, the, the, the average six-year-olds can't, yeah, there's there's something about the way that we express ourselves that seems to actually get better with age. You know mm-hmm. that that you know novelists and and poets and you know and journalists and anybody who uses words tends to get better at their job over time. So that there's something there's something about the you know just the lived experience mm-hmm. you know that that seems to affect the way that you express yourself that that appears to be very difficult to replicate <laughs> in a computer. You know in the, the in the same way that you know you, you do get like child prodigies for music and you get child prodigies for for, for math and that that sort of stuff where there there's apparently rules that you know you can you can discover at a very early age that doesn't seem to apply to writing all right so um Jonathan Keats um, one of the things we're really talking about here is is a, a huge multidisciplinary area called generative art right that there's there's this sense anyway that um, art and any kind of art, whether it's poetry, whether it's uh, music, whether it's the the fine arts, somehow or other could be arrived at in a way that frees it from human intention. I don't know. Am I am I am I doing a halfway decent job uh, identifying what it is we're talking about? I'm not sure that it's, it's a matter of weaving from human intention so much as weaving from a set of rules that have been extracted often by science. Um, by technological means, from observation of works that are already extant uh, in a given genre, and then allowing various processes to develop permutations. And generally speaking, those permutations are done in ways that are necessarily artificial, and to my understanding, probably have often more kinship to what happens in genetics, that is to say over multiple generations within our species and within life on Earth in general, then it has to do with what happens within the individual human mind. So I don't know that intentionality really is the right word to use, though I think that the provocation that is brought on by generative art is to make us really investigate what we mean when we speak about intentionality, which is one of the most fraught and difficult words in the humanities and philosophy. All right. Uh, and as we go along here, I should say there actually is uh, in New Haven right now at the Grove uh, an exhibition of generative art. Some of the artists from that exhibit are calling in. Uh, they want to talk about this and we'll, we'll absolutely get to them. But let's also add the third voice uh, of our three. Simon Colton, as I said, is the creator of The Painting Fool, a semi-autonomous painting computer. Um, so Simon Colton, for, tell us a little bit more uh, about The Painting Fool. For somebody who's never experienced this notion uh, of software that to a certain degree, can figure out what it wants to paint. Um, what is The Painting Fool? Oh, hi. hi. Um, well, the, the Painting Fool is a, is a long-term project, which I'm kind of betting my career against. <laughs> uh, the aim is for it to be taken seriously as a creative artist in its own right one day. Um, and we get closer to that um, day each year. 
And we do that not by looking necessarily at the kind of um, physical aspects of the painting process. We, we have software called the Painting for which can make marks on a, on a screen and make it look like a paint stroke and so on. Um, but we're more interested uh, in the cognitive aspects of the painting process. To me, it's 99% a intellectual cognitive process and 1% making marks on the paper. Um, so with each new project, we cover something at that high level. And it was interesting that um, you and Jonathan have been talking about intentionality because that was the most recent thing that um, we looked at. We, we set up a, a project um, in an art gallery to uh, try and convince people that what the software was doing was, uh, could be described with the word intentionality, albeit um, in a minor sense. Um, so, for instance, we got the software to be reading a newspaper, um, and whenever you sat down to have your portrait painted, because he was doing portraits, um, it was in a particular mood described or determined by what he was reading. Um, if he'd been reading really miserable articles about wars and death and famine, it would be in a bad mood, and if it's in a really bad mood, it would tell you to go away. Um, <laughs> if it was in a better mood because it's reading more interesting articles, uh, it would try and produce a portrait, and then depending on the, the kind of nuance of its mood, the portrait would change, and we never had any idea what mood it would be in. Um, and then it would intend to do something. It would make a very quick sketch uh, inside its uh, processing of what it wanted to produce. Then it would render on screen, a hand would appear, and you'd see the painting. Before, um, it would take a photograph, and then it would paint, paint the portrait. Um, and then at the end, it would compare its portrait to its sketch and see whether it um, achieved its intention. And the intention was always to achieve a type of mood. So if it was in a good mood, it would try and produce a portrait which was bright and colorful and a bit slapdash. If it was in a bad mood, it would try and produce something which is more gray uh, and miserable. Um, and it assessed its uh, abilities at the end and learned from the process. And then we asked people to say, has it been intentional? Do you think the software has shown some intention there? And in many cases, people did say yes. So that, that's the kind of way we progress with the Painting Fool project. All right, this is really fascinating stuff, and I'm going to bounce this off the other two guests, uh, Simon Colton, uh, Brian uh, Francis Slattery. I'm going to start with you. You know, there's intention, there's intentionality. There's also volition. You know, you ha- in other words, one thing that an artist does, any kind of creative artist does, is get up some morning and say, I'm going to write a fugue. I'm going to write a poem. Uh, I'm going to paint a picture. Now, one of the interesting things that Simon Colton is describing here, one of the things that, that you know, not there are not only these gradations of mood, but the program also has the uh, option of being in such a miserable mood that it tells you to go away, <laughs> you know. So yeah. in a way, he's created artif- an artificial moment of volition. The, the thing, the, the software has to be in a, quote, good enough mood to actually want to do any work. Although mm-hmm. I, Tim, I, I would raise the question about whether that constitutes true volition. What would you say? Um, I mean, it's it's it sounds like it's it's like one of those great experiments, right? Because my first thought of when when listening to the idea was that you know there there are people that when they're in a lousy mood, you know, respond to it by being really productive, right? Mm-hmm. They try to get their mind off of it, but that's sort of more. I mean, you're probably going to get a bunch of maddening responses from me throughout this show, <laughs> but the yeah, it's 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 more like you know that that's just a question of degree, right? I I think that I I mean. To to go back to what I was kind of to what I was saying before, I, I think that the the, the intent of which, which we think that there's a qualitative difference between us and machines. I think I think we like to hang on to that idea, but I sort of suspect that ultimately it's quantitative. Well, you know, Jonathan Keats, in a way, Simon Colton's raising a really basic question: What does an artist do? 
You know, what 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 thing is it that starts art that makes art happen? Um, and 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 in a way, that's the t- one of the tougher questions to answer. Right. What what is what does an artist do? Well, I think that this is also uh, a moving target, so to speak, meaning what an artist did when there was a very strong academic tradition in place uh, was something that I think could be relatively narrowly defined in terms of, again, a, a set of rules that were applied to a given situation that produced a body of work that was deemed acceptable to the degree to which it followed those rules yet ever so slightly uh, broke or otherwise played with them. But I think that that really has changed enormously in the 20th and 21st century, starting with Marcel Duchamp and his very famous act of putting a urinal into an exhibition and in the early 20th century having that uh, described as a work of art and therefore by way of that and the idea of the ready-made making it so that anything becomes art by virtue of defining it as such. That move that he made more or less disrupted everything, and we're really living in the wake of it, where more or less what the artist does today, I believe, primarily is at a meta level, a conceptual level, rather than at the level of the practice that takes place once that concept has been established. Or in other words, it would seem to me that what we're finding is that Simon Colton is becoming a first-rate conceptual artist in the process of making the painting fool act as much as possible like the standard or almost the the, the paradigm, the, the cliche, I would almost say, of what an artist is and what an artist does. But what would be even more interesting as a new project for him would be to figure out how to make a computer that could do what he has done, that is to say, to operate at that meta level. All right. We'll come back to that. Um, we're, we're, we have a, uh, we've made a solemn vow not to get too bogged down in the notion of singularity, but we might, might come back to what you're talking about here. But, Jonathan, I want to just follow up with you with one more thing, which is that you, know, you mentioned Duchamp, uh, and at a, cert- at a certain point, it seems to me that there are these two kind of counterpoised movements. One of them is embodied by Simon Colton, who is, you know, who is creating machines, so to speak, that act more and more like artists. But, but starting somewhere around the 1950s, and I probably could be placed a little bit more accurately, um, artists began to respond probably at the level of anxiety, but also at the level of inspiration to these kinds of movements and began, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, to begin to create work that was more like the work of machines. And you even think about, you know, somebody like Saul LeWitt, who's doing what is sometimes called or was doing what's sometimes called algorithmic drawing, right? He's not drawing things. He's in some ways being more like a machine, coming up with an idea whose whose strokes, whose breaststrokes will be done by other people. So so is there all was there was there sort of a parallel movement? Is there a parallel movement of human artists trying to get closer or, or experimenting with getting closer to the behavior of machines. I think that that's an astute observation, though. Whether anxiety is the <laughs> major operator, I think I wouldn't generalize that too much. Uh, obviously, Andy Warhol is another great, famous case of this, where he set up a factory 
in which he essentially had no physical involvement in the making of the work and attempted to use processes of mass production to become, in effect, a machine in terms of the uh, the, the making of of what was considered to be fine art, and which was, in fact, incredibly profound art at a conceptual level. So, to me, it really comes down to that human ability, which may also in the future be an ability amongst machines or other organisms. I'm not really one to say, because I'm not a futurist, but a hu- the human ability to assimilate experiences and to use them to new expressive ends. And the taking of experience has been from looking out at the world, looking at other organisms, looking at the behavior that has been found through the sciences within within systems of um, subatomic particles even, but also looking to computers and what they do and robots and what they do and using that as a basis for making new forms of art, either about computers or about robotics, which is really where futurism gets going in, uh, in the teens, or really assimilating and trying to become the machine, as one could argue that Warhol has done. So, Simon Colton, everybody has a, a good idea for what you should do next. So, Jonathan Keats wants you to build a machine <laughs> that can make the painting fool. And what Brian Slattery really wants you to do is um, to uh, program the painting fool so it can decide how to handle a bad mood, right? Right now, uh, it's a threshold thing. If if, uh, if the painting fool is in a bad enough mood, it won't work at all. If it's in a slightly less bad mood, it'll produce something, some art that's reflective of that bad mood. But what Brian wants you to do is to get the painting fool to a point where it might decide, it might decide that the best way to react to the blackest of all moods is to produce some, you know, horrifically negative piece of art. Is that within the scope of The Painting Fool? Uh, well, everything is within the scope of The Painting Fool, and when I hear good suggestions like that, um, the scope uh, enhances and, and gets bigger. Um, I, <laughs> I agree that um, this can be seen as a conceptual art project, um, that's for sure, um, and the suggestion to make the software act more like me at a meta level is, is a very good one, uh, and one we've already considered. Um, and what is it that I do most as a person? Well, I program. Um, so the Painting Fool and other projects we've got are now uh, moving in the direction of software writing software. It solves a lot of the difficult questions that we get about autonomy and the software just being a tool. If we could say, for example, well, the software wrote all of its own code, um, and we just gave it the ability to write code um, and some other gifts, um, and it came back with its own code and made art using that. Um, so I'm definitely on top of that kind of thing. It's a, it's a large project, and we keep writing grant proposals to get funding for it. Um, so I, I agree with that. Um, I'm, I'd like to draw a distinction a little bit between um, art about machines and art inspired by machines um, and the notion of art made by machines. Um, it's, it, it has obviously happened historically that people have been inspired by new technological developments, um, and there's lots of people uh, who make art about machines, um, like, uh, just like people used to draw um, steam trains and paint steam trains back in those days. 
Um, but there's a big difference between that and software acting autonomously, independently um, from its programmer to create art um, for various reasons. Um, and I, I think it's, it's, it's a good idea to kind of separate those kind of things. Oh, absolutely. I agree. I mean, I was sort of bringing that up more with Jonathan because I do think there, you know, there are sort of parallel movements here. One of them is can can we make a machine that basically mirrors uh, and 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 in some ways approximates uh, the task uh, of an artist. But I think sort of there's a sort of a parallel movement fueled by I thought anxiety, but I, that's my first guess about everything. Uh, it could be par- inspired by by anything. But you know, there are, and we'll talk about them a little bit in some of the other segments. I think some of the callers. Uh, may be able to mention there are even artists right now whose art projects amount to human simulations of computers, sometimes done in rather amusing ways. Anyway, we have to take a quick break here. We'll come back. We'll take some calls. We'll talk more to our guests after this. Computer, you make me feel all right. Every waking hour and every lonely night. I love my computer for all you give to me. Predictable errors and no identity. I've never been quite so So our topic we call it Compumanities. To what degree can artificial intelligences approximate the work of the arts, the humanities? What human element can't be achieved, or is there a human element that ultimately can't be achieved? Um, and is the work of the artistic work of artificial intelligences does it maybe deserve to be judged by some other standard anyway? Um, now we talked a little bit about the difficulty of uh, computers or artificial uh, minds expressing themselves in words. Uh, there's a program called RoboPoem, uh, which uh, combines some user input with uh, algorithmically generated computer words to produce original poetry. Let's let's hear a RoboPoem. First time I saw her, I was a man, full and alive. Yet barely breathing, I understood how warm my blood was, not hot, but warm, and the air was freezing. The city was ancient and mystical and it didn't belong to me. I wore out my boots, trying to endear myself to the cracked and dying concrete. I wish I was back in the land of pickpockets and paper pennies. I wish we got paid to erect billboards that told all our secrets. I wish I was on that tin foil probe to Pluto. I wish I had a million miles to go. All right. Well, now, so Brian Francis Slattery, there is a sense to all of that, uh, or mm-hmm. at least there is a sense that we can, as listeners or readers, supply to all of that. Mm-hmm. But one, I think one of the things we have to say, uh, one of the differences maybe between um, – art generated by artificial intelligence and art gener- generated by humans is we have an, uh, a curiosity uh, and a set of assumptions about the human experience behind all art, right? You're, you, there's a reason why you go to MoMA and it's hard to get near the Van Gogh because people, even people who aren't, don't know too much, too much about art, they know something about Van Gogh and they see his art as the product of a certain set of mm-hmm. human experiences and, 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 and they don't really make a huge separation between those two things. Yeah, I know. And I think, I think that's definitely true. I mean, people, I, the, you know, if when you respond to a piece of art, you want to know something about the, the person who made it. 
And that, I think that's a very natural thing. I mean, I'm I'm certainly totally guilty of that. Where if if I discover somebody through their through their music, one of my first thoughts is, who is this person? You know, how how did they? And you, you don't think you want to decode it, but you do want to you do want to feel like you know where the, where it's all coming from. Um, so I think that some of the reaction that people have against you know art that's created by machines is the idea that they can't do that. You know that, that whatever their reaction is, it it ends there. Right. Because, there is there's no particular reason why that machine wishes what it was on the tin foil probe yeah, to Pluto. Yeah, because I mean I think ultimately people are kind of looking for a kind of connection, right? Like a personal. Because you wish you were on the tinfoil probe to Pluto too. You, you I want, think we all do. Yeah, we all yeah. do, and we may be, but uh, but we want to do wish that for the same reasons, or at least understand each other's yeah. reasons. Yeah. So I, I mentioned that there's actually an exhibit at the Grove uh, on Chapel Street in New Haven uh, of uh, generative art. Uh, and before we go back to our other two guests, I'm going to just sort of acquaint people with that a little bit. Uh, Dan Bernier and I wound up tweeting back and forth today, so uh, our whole acquaintance uh, was conducted in cyberspace, which is probably um, <laughs> probably somewhat appropriate. Uh, just, uh, Dan, uh, in a nutshell, tell us what's going up there, what's already up there since August 15th at the Grove. Uh, well, basically, it's um, a number of pieces of art that are generated uh, by algorithm. They're not all executed by machines. Some of them are executed by hand, but some are, uh, very many of them are uh, are executed by, by software. In fact, most of my pieces are rendered as PDFs and then printed at a local print shop. Um, one of the pieces that we have was there is a, a an old elevator grid at the or there's an old elevator at the grove and it has uh, that kind of wire mesh cage around it mm-hmm. and the 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 holes in the mesh are about an inch and a half on a side and they're they're square so we decided to fill those squares uh, with slices of pool noodles in blue and green and use it to uh, to make an image of Marilyn Monroe because it's a very recognizable <laughs> face so since it's so low res it's kind of it had to be a face and, and be fairly recognizable for people to make sense of it. So do, um, so does this exhibit explore some of the questions that we're asking, too? To what degree? I mean, that, that's, that, that sounds like it has a high level of intentionality in it, a high level of human involvement. So this sounds a, a, little, a little bit more human and volitional and intentional than, say, the painting fool Simon Colton's software. software. Oh, yeah. Um, the... The pieces that are there, I think, definitely are, like, a lot of them are, you you know, you define an algorithm, and then you run it a hundred or a thousand times, and you see what it produces, and you select the ones that you like out of it, uh, and, and then you use those. Um, but in a lot of ways, I think that, um, it, I, I sort of think about Saul Lewitt a lot when I'm working on my pieces, because he had that same approach of, like, you know, pick a plan, pick an idea, and then execute it a few times and see kind of does the plan, does the idea, the concept have any legs? And if it does, then, you know, you kind of go with it. Imagine um, there, there was definitely some choice in the algorithms that he chose. Um, and and I, I think that, uh, there, there's, I'll put it this way, there are no pieces at the Grove, I would say, where they are entirely aesthetically driven by the aesthetics of a computer. Um, if we had anything like that, I don't know that we would recognize it as art, actually. Well, uh, well, Simon Colton might disagree with you, right? I mean, Simon Colton, you do consider the work that 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 the painting fool does recognizable as art. Yes, but um, art is, uh, as we said earlier, is um, is a moving target. Um, it's a, what we call in philosophy an essentially contested concept. 
as a, as a society, we've agreed to disagree about it. So my opinion is no more valid than anybody else's. Um, I did want to come back to a couple of points raised in this last section, um, which we have covered in the field of computational creativity. In fact, they're two of the, the kind of driving forces uh, right now. Um, so it was mentioned that um, with the robo-poet, it didn't really have those intentions. Uh, it didn't really have a reason to want to go to Pluto. Mm. Um, and, and you're right, with the vast majority of generative software, it never tells you why it's done something. It never tells you how it's done something, and it never tells you what it thinks of the output. Um, and we've realized um, in computational creativity that, that that is a big part of the process of um, appreciating art. You, you want all of this background information. You get it with artists, because you know about people like Van Gogh. Um, and even if an artist comes to light who you have no background information about, you can always make up romantic uh, ideals about them. They live in a, Paris, in a Parisian garret, and they, they paint pictures for their dinner. Um, and so what happens is that we make up romantic, lovely notions for human artists, and we make up cold and unintelligent notions for software artists, which is perfectly natural. Um, and so what we have to do in computational creativity is get our software to make commentaries. So I have poetry generating software. It's part of the Painting Full project, in fact. Um, and the software doesn't just um, write a poem. In fact, it gives you two pieces of text. The first piece of text is its motivation. It tells you what newspaper article it was reading. It tells you what kind of uh, mood it was in. It tells you what it extracted from the newspaper article and what it took away from it. Um, and then it tells you the poem. And then afterwards, it tells you what it thought about the poem. Um, and in addition to all of this, it makes up an aesthetic for the day um, based on various well-thought-through uh, reasons. Um, and those aesthetics could be lyricism um, or rhyme. It could be um, something a bit more shocking, like having some strange words in the poem. But it, it clearly makes that decision based on interesting reasons and then, um, and then projects that onto the poem as an aesthetic and chooses the aesthetic itself. Uh, sorry, chooses the poem itself. It generates 100 poems um, and then does uh, what we're just hearing pre uh, previously, what people normally do, which is choose the best from the 100 poems. And we have a name for that, that's the curation coefficient. So it's very easy to get software to generate pieces of text which are poem-shaped, go through a thousand of them, choose the one which is really pertinent, and present it as this wonderful creation. But in reality, the software has done very little, and the person has done all of the artistic um, endeavor by, by choosing the right one. Um, and so what we try and do in computational creativity is bring down the curation coefficient. Be honest about it. If half of the poems are so bad you'd be embarrassed to tell them to your friends, then you're getting a 50% curation coefficient. If only one in a thousand is any good, then you've still got a lot of work to do. Um, so we, we are on top of all of these issues. It just hasn't yet filtered down to the more mainstream software which people write to, to generate poems and, and paintings and so on. In just a second, I'm going to go back to Dan Bernier and ask him uh, why he wouldn't consider uh, something like that art. But before that, Jonathan Keats, I guess I'm kind of now wondering whether the backstory we have for art is essential to art or arbitrary. So, I mean, in other words, we, we, do, we do in all the ways that Brian uh, was saying, we do either know or want to know uh, the human story of somebody who creates something and why they create it. We, there's also a, a whole element to creation that it's unlike the, the work that Simon just described, it's often done for people, right? Artists, poets, musicians, they have muses, they write uh, songs and poems for for another person quite frequently, uh, often about another person. Um, so we think of all of that as intrinsic to art. But 
have we just sort of created a set of arbitrary standards that can can be cast down to accommodate a whole new aesthetic that's that's driven by artificial intelligence? It seems to me that the artist decides where to frame the work, how large the frame is. And that has become a more conscious act as time has gone on. So you have, for instance, in installation art, an installation might include some paintings. It might also include some text, and it might include the creation of a, an imaginary artist who supposedly lived in the room and made all the paintings. So I think that you can work at whatever level you choose, but the choice of level is the essential thing. And to me, in the case of the painting Fool, the frame that is most compelling is the frame that includes not only the artworks on the wall, not only the Fool, but the Fool and also Simon Colton and his group. That is to say that it gets more interesting at the point that you have that context and you have that tension that exists between something that looks like what you have previously thought of as art and a system that doesn't correspond to it as a system for making art. And that disconnect, I think, brings you psychologically, philosophically into a new space, a provocative space that to me is the artistic achievement of the painting fool. Um, a great, uh, a great way to frame it. Let me go back to Dan for a second. So, uh, having heard all that, um, tell me why you wouldn't consider some. Uh, maybe I'm even misstating your premise, but why you wouldn't consider something art that was solely, exclusively generated by non-human artificial intelligence? Well, I wouldn't say that I wouldn't consider them art. Um, I, I don't know what I really would consider art. Uh, it's, it, I mean, it's one of those old questions. Like, mm. I find that if the person viewing it can enjoy it either in an aesthetic sense or in um, an emotional sense or in an intellectual sense, uh, and they're, they're getting something out of it, and that could be getting a connection with the creator too, uh, then I think that that's valuable. And if you want to call that art, then go for it. And if you don't, then go for that too. Um, but I, I think, though, that this time is absolutely right that uh, the, the work that we've been doing um, – you know, if, if you have to generate a thousand of them and throw most of them away, then you need to raise the bar and, and bring down the curation process. I agree with him. Um, I'm not that good yet, so I, I still have to settle for that kind of a ratio. Uh, but, I, you know, I keep trying to get better. Um, All right. I'm going to just uh, pause you there and pause the show there just because we've got to kind of time things out. Um, I've got a whole area I want to get into in the final segment here. Uh, I'll try to get at least one or two more calls on the air. We've got people calling in at 860-275-7266. You may also tweet us, which seems appropriate, at WNPR, Colin. Vast information with no principles or philosophies. Computers doing the thinking, they taking the jobs by the minute. Technology advancing at a fast pace. Machines thinking for humans, great minds disappearing. Not that you care, you probably updating your Facebook. Hey, yo, 2045, science takes over the planet. Robotic engineering, technological advancement. Today's show was produced by the Nilea 3000, a state-of-the-art radio producer software program that can think up show ideas, book guests, and worry incessantly. Also, Betsy Kaplan and me. 
Greg Hill appeared in the intro and tweets for us at WNPR Colin. The part of Bill Curry was played by a Lappy 486. For show pages, articles, and videos of a massive robot draining the life force out of the Faith Middleton Show staff, visit our website, WNPR.org. On tomorrow's show, the nose wonders whether it's okay to fake your own death to get out of a webinar. And now, back to Colin. I think anything you have to do to get out of a webinar, you, you are morally justified in doing. Uh, all right, but that's a whole separate question. Uh, we've been talking about uh, this notion of compu-humanities. Uh, can uh, and, and will artificial intelligence begin to do artistic endeavors uh, that, that uh, rival and closely mirror human activity, human creative activity? With us, uh, Brian Francis Slattery. Uh, his new book, The Family Hightower, comes out in September. Uh, Jonathan Keats, uh, his latest book, Forge, Why Fakes Are the Greatest Great Art of Our Age, is out now. He's a conceptual artist and experimental philosopher. Simon Colton is a, a professor of computational creativity at Goldsmith College at the University of London. He's the creator of The Painting Fool, a semi-autonomous painting computer, which you've been hearing about uh, here on the show today. So I want to at least talk a little bit here about also about us, uh, because the other thing that I think is happening is um, that uh, a lot of our conversation assumes a kind of stasis in the human audience, and I don't think that's real. I think we're we're changing too, and we're changing in ways that maybe make us more able to relate to work that's created by other kinds of intelligences. And so, Brian Francis Slattery, I'm going to have you put on your science fiction writer hat a little bit anyway to uh, talk about this. That that you know we we hear about transhumanism, that the sense a sense that somehow or other, uh, rather than there being a singularity, it may be just that we'll get a lot more like machines, and machines will get a a lot more like us. We'll be enhancing ourselves in lots of artificial and uh, technological ways. But I feel like even now, I've become really fascinated, and there's been a lot of writing recently about emoji. Emoji are these little symbols, you know, that pop up to illustrate how somebody feels about a piece of text that has reached them in a digital way. And um, it almost seems like one way to create an audience for a poem written by software is to make the human responsive palette more like software, too. And that's kind of happening with emoji, right? This is like I am now going to express my emotions in a symbol created for me and everybody else digitally and recognizable by your phone. I think I mean, I, I, I agree with you very much in this in this sort of general thrust of things, but to to you know the the other sort of thing that science fiction loves to talk about is the way that you know a happy accident can like destroy all of that in a in a <laughs> just a second you know like you know Asimov's probably his like one of his greatest you know one of, one of his greatest ideas was the idea of psychohistory right that mm -hmm. you can create this science that can predict the future and then as soon as he comes up with that idea he comes up with the counter idea which is that all you need is something that the that the model didn't predict and then the mm -hmm. whole thing goes haywire and you know, to to get to your your question of like what you think, you know, may still be just out of reach. Mm -hmm. I mean, that that's that's what I think about. I think about those accidents, happy or unhappy. You know, the things that you couldn't have predicted, the things that are very difficult to program, the things that you know, you, you know, somebody somebody ate a bad sandwich and it put them in a bad mood, and they played some amazing note that they wouldn't have played otherwise because you know they they just felt differently than they expected to feel. Um, I, th I think all of that stuff is you know, the the it's the, uh, it, it's, it's the way that 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 in, it's the thing that's out of reach of this of this conversation, and it makes it. I think I think it, it makes many of the projects that we've been talking about on the show really interesting. You know, my my question would always be at the end is like, can you make happy accidents out of out of the 
processes that we've been talking about. Well, let me also ask you one more sci-fi question, and I'll be having you put your musician hat on a little bit for it. But but in ge- generally, and this is something I'm going to have Jonathan and Simon talk a bit about too, is w- another possibility is that artificial intelligence could just get a lot better at things than mm-hmm. we are. And so that's that comes up in dystopian science fiction a lot too, yeah. right? That we begin yeah, seeding things. And it's happening already, as you know perfectly well. Uh, you don't do this, but you know musicians now say, we'll fix it in post. And that means we'll, we'll <laughs> auto-tune it. I didn't play it very well. I didn't sing it very well. Yes. But we now have a machine that will fix the fact that I didn't say it very well. I didn't play it very well. And, and you wonder about a certain kind of atrophy happening and sure. uh, us turning more and more work over to machines like Simon's machine. Yeah, I mean, I think that, there, that auto-tune is a really good example of that. Um, you know, one thing that I heard from a producer recently that I was talking to is that, you know, auto-tune has kind of created its own aesthetic, right? Because it, it, the, the auto-tune is, is perceptible to people. You can hear when somebody's been auto-tuned. You know, like once, you, once you know what you're supposed to be listening for, you can, you can hear it. And the result now is there are people who can sing as if they're being auto-tuned already. You know, they just <laughs> they've they've affected all of those all of those crazy jumps that you can get with auto-tune, and even like the tone of the, you know the tone of their voice sounds auto-tuned at this point. Um, so Simon Colton, uh, I'll sort of turn that question around in a different way for you. But I mean, one of the things that could happen with the painting fool is that it, it's probably already better, quote unquote, at painting, at painting pictures than I am. Well, it's definitely better than I am. And it's probably better than more than 50 percent of the human population. Um, so you sort of wonder about that, whether we could turn into a society that watches machines like yours uh, create art for us and whether we should that should bother us. Uh, well, it's in the visual arts, it's wonderful that there is no real notion of better especially in the last 100, 150 years, where we've gone to more conceptualize, uh, conceptual art rather than pure representation um, or kind of academy art. Um, so it may well be that uh, the end of the odyssey for conceptual creativity um, will be that we realize that um, the process affects our appreciation of the product. Um, and when we know that uh, software has produced something, we'll realize that being human is better than being software. Um, it's something we know about in the field. Um, we call it the humanity gap. Whatever happens, I'm not a, a singularity theory uh, guy either. Um, I don't think, that, certainly not in my lifetime, software will become human or humans will become software. So there'll always be this distinction between a computer program and a person. Um, and the question for us as researchers is how can we fill that humanity gap? Because really people, lots of people appreciate art for the human connection that it makes, especially with things like poetry. What, uh, what can we do to, to fill that gap? Well, the first thing we can do is to get software to frame its own work. This came up previously, to tell you about its intentions and so forth. Um, so we can get software to be more and more human and be, uh, exceed humans in some ways, um, if we can clarify that, and do things that people can't do, like read a million tweets and find just the right one to, to present uh, an idea. Um, and we can look at things like serendipity. We've, we've looked at computational serendipity in the field as well. And we can set up environments where software can be seen to take advantage of serendipitous uh, scenarios. But that will never get as past the fact that software isn't human. Um, and uh, in the visual arts and poetry and in humanities in general, often we're looking for that human connection. Um, so I don't, I don't worry when people say that software will replace humans um, in the visual arts. That, that's crazy. That's 
you should be more worried about the next set of art graduates than the, the next set of computer <laughs> programs. Um, really, what will happen will be that um, more and more people appreciate the visual arts because they can buy computer-generated artwork, which is bespoke to them, which is unique. Very difficult. Not many people in their homes, very, very small number of people have a unique piece of art. We all have prints. Um, and even fewer get a piece of art to commission, like a portrait. That, that can be filled in. That gap can be filled in um, by software. And I think that will be a, a boon to the whole of humanities. We will start appreciating um, artwork uh, a lot more and the human connection that it makes. All right, uh, Jonathan Keats, uh, I've got uh, 90 seconds for you, which is uh, not going to be enough. But it seems to me that we're, we're talking about um, two kind of dichotomous things, humans and software. And probably, I mean, and I'm talking to you now, I think the first conversation we ever had, you had an, ex- uh, an installation set up where you were having plants watch television. Uh, and if, if you, if you, movies, okay. And as you project out from there, it seems to me that the things that we'll be talking about even five years from now will be environments in which, you know, the behavior of electrons in a super collider is, and then the behavior of, of organisms in some genetically modified environment is being heard and understood and processed by software. In other words, we'll be talking about much more hybridized forms of art than just software versus human. I think that what we will be looking at is increasingly inscrutable systems, uh, loops between a creative and critical function that we will be more and more in a position of subservience or of inferiority at some level to it that will drive us more and more to question and to investigate our own means of communication and interrelationship. That's where it becomes most powerful to me, is where the technology, as it advances, makes us reflect back on ourselves and think about how we communicate and what we can't communicate as a result of the way in which our minds work and the way in which the world works. Uh, That is a beautiful place to end. Thanks so much to Brian Slattery, Jonathan Keats, Simon Colton. We'll be back tomorrow with the nose. Thanks to Josh Nalea. He's the guy who pulled this all together. I don't know how he did it. I hope I did it justice. I'm Kion Wolf, 3000, tasked with coming up with a clever last word. Uh, do we have an intern, 3000, who can do this for me?